0: And today our guest is Robert Ritzenthaler. And he is the president and see I nailed that, Robert.
1: (laughs) That's beautiful. You got it.
0: (laughs) He is the president and CEO of REM Capital. And he grew up in the Dallas Fort Worth working in his father's construction business, but had always actually dreamed of being an investment banker on Wall Street. And he started REM with the simple mission of the right deal and the right people. And today, that dream has grown over to $300 million in assets under management across eight different states, over 22 different properties. And so, Robert, I'm super excited to have you on the show today, sharing a little bit more about your journey, what you've been through, the successes and challenges, building your own business. So welcome to the show, Robert. How are you doing today?
1: Thank you. My pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. And I was going to say a little update only because I'm kind of excited about it. We're going to be over a half a billion wow. by the end of next month. So half that's kind of a cool milestone. Yeah. That, is very,
0: <laughs> that is a huge milestone. Congratulations.
1: Yes. We're excited. It's fun. It got here a lot faster than we thought. I will tell you that much, but it's a good thing.
0: <laughs> a lot faster than you thought. So why did it take? Why was it a lot faster than you thought? And like, what was the goal when you first started out with this journey?
1: Sure. Well, I could tell you exactly why that would probably be good. I don't know exactly why, but I will say that it goes back to our mission statement, which is the right people and right deal. Mm -hmm. And ironically enough, when I wrote that mission statement four and a half, five years ago, I really didn't think about it. I thought, well, you know, let's just put something on the wall and get started. You know, you got to start somewhere, right? And it's kind of funny because over the years, I keep looking at it. I'm like, yeah, that's actually really, really simple, but it works. And so I think we've just stuck to that. And I constantly look back at that and say, do we have the right deal? And do we have the right people to run the deal? Because at the end of the day, you kind of need both. Mm-hmm. You could probably actually do without the right deal and still be okay with the right people. But obviously, if you're going to outperform, you need both. So that's kind of been what it is. And you know, when I initially set out to start things, I remember I looked back at my initial business plan. And I think I had us at a hundred million by three years, and two hundred million by five or six years, something like that. Mm-hmm. And and even then, I thought, well, you know, if we don't hit that, that's okay. We don't need to be, you know, massive. It's all right. But um, we did our first deal and went well, and then it was kind of a few more deals and went pretty well. And then the track record and the reputation start to, you know, people start to kind of take notice. And then all of a sudden, you know, the deals start to pick up and the relationships start to build. And then we had a couple of full cycle deals earlier in this year that were nice. So we were able to show, Hey, we actually did what we said. (laughs) And so now we've been, I think we're over a deal a month that we're closing this year in 2022. So it's been pretty busy. That's for sure.
0: (laughs) So Robert, you started in investment banking. You started on Wall Street. How mm-hmm. did you make that transition from Wall Street into real estate? Like, what did you see there, and why did you come into real estate and give up the investment banking side of
1: things? Yeah, well, it's interesting because, you know, when you're young, you have these idealized pictures. And so for me, I thought, hey, Wall Street investment banking, I want to do mergers and acquisitions. I love numbers, I love deal making. That sounds like a great fit and then after you get there and you realize that there are uh, you know mostly money driven people doing those deals and a lot of focus on just hitting numbers and not really being concerned with employees or businesses and that kind of thing that was a little bit of a disenchantment for me to kind of realize that was the case and then i will say in investment banking it's a really really tough industry i mean people work absolutely crazy hours now they make a lot of money So that's the upside, but that's about all they get is a bunch of money.
0: (laughs) Do you think it's worth it? Like, you know, because they're working on Wall Street, we've heard a lot of times, they're working like 60, 80 hour work weeks, but the payout Mm -hmm. is very good. The costs or the, the, the salary that they're getting, what they're making, do you think for you at least, did it compensate enough for your time to be making that type of salary?
1: You know, I think from a time perspective, it's probably worth it because it is good pay. And, and I don't want to make it sound like everybody is terrible. You know, that's not true either. But I think as a whole, it's a very, it's kind of a narrow focus. And my dream was to be a little bit more like a Warren Buffett type. You know, I thought, hey, that's what people on Wall Street do. Not so much. And so I read a lot of Warren Buffett books and I thought, wow, that's really neat. He goes in and actually buys companies that are generating cash flow that produce actual money, actual distributions, and that kind of thing. Ironically enough, I got involved with pre-IPO technology companies when I was on Wall Street and made a lot of money and lost a lot of money too. <laughs> but you know, there was just so little reality that was tied to those deals that I kind of walked away feeling this is a strange way to run a business and run your life. And so when the market did crash back in March of 2000, it was kind of a turning point for me where I felt like maybe this is an opportunity to do something else. And I actually had a buddy of mine who brought me over to help out with a growing real estate firm in New York City. And I stayed with them for a number of years and got a phenomenal mentorship there, learned all about the business. And that's really where I got started. And you know, it was fun because we got to do a lot of different things. It wasn't a multi, multi-billion dollar company. Today, they're pretty big. They're actually one of the larger landlords in the city. But back then it was kind of growing. A lot of opportunity to to kind of spread my wings, do some fun projects. I helped start a construction management division in the company and you know, just do a lot of fun things. So I really appreciated that. But that's how I got into the industry. But like so many folks, which I know you guys kind of have that same track, you're working a W-2 job and you don't really think about the investment side of it. You know, You see and you help everybody make all this money, but you don't really think about it. And it's kind of funny because for many years working in corporate, I never thought about doing my own thing. I thought about, oh, you know, maybe I'll buy a a one or two unit rental, you know, whatnot. Mm -hmm. But I never really thought about it in terms of a company. And so it's funny. And it took a long time until I started thinking, wait a minute, I've got, you know, 15, 20 years of experience and I've managed hundreds of millions of dollars. Maybe this would be a good thing to do on my own.
0: (laughs) So... I want to touch on that really quick because a lot of times there's some people out there who go through life their entire life and they never come across this realization or this thought that you've come across. Yeah. What changed for you or like, what did you encounter that shifted your mind to thinking this way?
1: You know, I think it was a gradual process. I wish I could say there was like a book or a class or something that I went to, but it was kind of a gradual process of just looking at my own financial situation, thinking, you know, what can I do to generate another stream of income, which a lot of people do. And then thinking, okay, well, I know real estate. Great. So I can go out and let's say, buy a house, fix it up, make $100,000 over a year or two and do that a couple of times a year. Hey, that's a nice little bonus, right? Extra stream of income. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and so it kind of started more with that because, again, growing up in construction, for me, it's kind of like, hey, I can do anything with my hands, work here, etc. And it pays pretty well, but it's a job at the end of the day. And you have a lot of taxes that you have to con- you know, contend with also. So I think that was phase one. And then phase two was, all right, so I make this extra money. What do I do with it? Do I dump it back in the stock market or what? And so for me, having come from the stock market environment, and I mean, I had started investing when I was probably 13 years old with all my savings. You know, I'd throw it into the mutual funds and whatnot. And it's a great place. I mean, I pretty much paid for half of my college through investing. So kind of cool. But having worked there and kind of knowing the inside of the process, I was a little bit jaded, you might say.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> so, so I thought, no, nah, I don't want to put my money back in the stock market. I've seen that. I know that. You know, it's Okay. So that kind of led me to thinking about, well, maybe I should put it back into some sort of real estate, but not real estate that is just a flip, more of a long-term cash-flowing asset. And then, of course, thinking about, again, my experience with multifamily and office, maybe I should invest in something like that. problem is, for me at least, when I thought about investing in a 2 or 3 or 4 unit, I wasn't really that excited about it because it's a small project and you still have to clean the toilets and you got to do all this stuff, which, you know, okay, maybe, but I thought, Hey, if I can partner with some people and we can buy a hundred units, now we've got a larger property. We can have full-time staff. We can really have the economies of scale and lower some of our risk as partners. And so, and then I started learning about the tax benefits of a 1031, which I didn't know about. And so it all kind of just, you know, started coming together and then being that I'm not 65 and I have plenty of you know years ahead of me I thought hey this might be a great opportunity to partner with other folks and bring my expertise to the table and build a nice little business so
0: so you've been investing since you were 13 years old
1: yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> how
0: did how did you get started at 13 like where did that come come from
1: um probably from my parents my dad was investing back you know, when he was, uh, I don't know if he invested too far before that, but I think somewhere about that same time, you know, there was kind of a, I think there was more of a transition to, he had some money to invest. And of course I was watching him and I said, Hey, what are you doing over here? You know? <laughs> so, and that was back when you had to go to the library and you'd check out the like three inch thick morning star guide <laughs> on all the different mutual funds, you know, it's hard to even remember that, but. I remember asking my mom, "Hey, can I go to the library so I can research Morningstar, you know, ratings or whatnot?" And then you know, it just kind of goes from there, and you start to realize that you can make money while you're sleeping, and that's kind of a cool concept. And yeah, it's really cool. And uh, but anyway, so that's kind of how I got involved in, in investing. And it's... I always joke that my hobby was investing. So you know, I'd obviously go to school, I'd go to work at my job, and I would just take every penny that I can and just shovel it into my hobby which was a nice hobby because it made money. (laughs) So
0: It's so interesting that like, you know, especially exposure at a young age, you know, to what your parents were doing, how they were able to invest their money and make it can shape a lot of the things and a lot of decisions that you make later down the road and how you think about money and what you do with it.
1: It is true. And I, and that's why I say, I am so thankful to have that Upbringing and that opportunity, young in life, because I know that a lot of people don't. But honestly, that's kind of what's driving me to some degree with REM, where I want to bring that to our employees because a lot of them have grown up never hearing about investing and you know how you can you can use real estate to build a retirement. And so I'm really excited about doing that and you know kind of seeing that generational transformation at a very sort of workforce level, I think it's going to be cool. So that's one of the things that, you know, because of that and realizing that it's very, it's a huge blessing and just wanting to give back. um, It's kind of a, it's going to be a fun mission for us as we grow. So. So
0: how did you, how did REM come across like when did you decide that you were going to start REM and then build out that business? Was it after you had worked for your friend's um, firm, real estate firm, and then transitioned over? When did you branch off into your own uh, company?
1: Well, it wasn't very long ago. It was about four and a half years ago. It's pretty new, um, pretty recent, I should say. And it was kind of an interesting process. So I worked in New York City for a number of years, did a bunch of cool projects, and then I moved to Tampa and worked for a REIT, real estate investment trust, publicly traded. And I was out of the Tampa office, but they were based in Raleigh and they had a whole bunch of different locations, 4 billion dollars of real estate. And so it was great because I kind of went from a more entrepreneurial environment to still entrepreneurial but obviously big corporate, all the internal controls, etc. And I was even helping out with the Sarbanes-Oxley compliance way back in the day after that came out. But The experience that I got there was extremely valuable because there are certain structures that are really good to have. And especially when you're growing, you kind of need to know that. And so I took away a lot of great sort of notes in my mind about that going forward. You know, if you're a mom and pop shop, you don't necessarily need that. But as you grow, it's very important to have that, especially if you're handling hundreds of millions of dollars of other people's money. (laughs) So, So that was helpful. And then I did that. And then I kind of got to the point where I thought, hey, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to, I've learned real estate. I'm good here. I'm going to go maybe do some of my own projects or go invest in a business or something. So I actually invested. I think, I think from there, I invested in a business, partnered with a guy on a kind of unrelated, very minimal real estate, just kind of a cash flowing idea. And I thought, oh, you know, go do something else. That was a really bad decision because that partner was not good. So I learned, definitely learned the hard way about picking partners. <laughs> So I did that for a while, and then I actually did a couple of smaller projects myself. Um, did a couple of development projects in Nashville, which on were on your own,
0: like straight on your own, or without just, you, without partners and investors.
1: Well, I did have partners, but I was the money. I was the money nice. and kind of the overall managing partner. But I did have um, partners who were the you might say the sweat equity in the deal. But it was all my money, and uh, you know, I just thought, oh, you know, I can do a couple of deals here and there. But again, it wasn't you know nothing that would really scale per se did that for a little bit. And then I thought, well, hmm, I don't know what I'm going to do next. So (laughs) I actually, I went back and got my master's and my CPA because I'd always wanted to go back and get my CPA because I figured that was something that's that's helpful. And that's really where I got exposed primarily to the tax world. And at the time, ironically enough, I thought, you know, taxes, who wants to know anything to do with taxes? That's a complete, (laughs) you know, nightmare. But I'm really thankful that I did because the minute I started digging into it, it was kind of like this light went off and thought, wow, wait a minute, if I can make a dollar and keep a dollar versus trying to make a dollar and end up with 60 cents, this is a powerful model. And so not really tying it to real estate per se, just thinking about that, it really started to open my mind. And then when I finished that, I guess it was about a year or two after that, maybe something like that, a year or two, three years. Then I was working on kind of starting a, the first deal, thinking about a larger deal. And actually, a former partner of mine who I was working with, he was very focused on kind of building out a database of potential folks that we could talk to as investors, et cetera. And again, it was still kind of like, well, you know, maybe this will work, maybe it won't. And then I don't know, just all the pieces started to come together and we put together our first deal. And it was kind of a culmination of the tax. The tax knowledge that I had built over the years, plus the real estate and the funding and the structure, plus the property management that I had done over the the course of my career, and it all just kind of seemed to come together. And initially, it was more of a, "Hey, this is awesome. This is like a big deal, and we're done. We don't need to do anymore." Like one deal, that's good. <laughs> you know, it was kind of like all that ever dreamed then of. One and done. One one deal, like a hundred units. This is amazing. Like. I can't imagine having 100 units that I'm, that I'm managing. So I really didn't have a, a huge plan. But I remember getting the phone call from somebody that I knew shortly thereafter. And they said, hey, we're trying to do a deal in Dallas. We don't have the capital. We, we don't really have the resume. Would you be interested in partnering with us? And you know, looked into it. Good deal. Boom. Now, all of a sudden, oh, okay, two deals. <laughs> <laughs> so and it just kind of snowballed from there. And it just became a really good fit, way better than I thought. And part of it, honestly, was because I have always been on the operations and finance side. That's kind of my wheelhouse. I can run a property with my eyes closed. But I'd never dealt with investor relations. I'd never really dealt with that side of the business. And so I just kind of naively thought, well, I'm not very good at it. I'm the operations guy. And then when I was forced to start talking to investors... And again, I'm not a sales guy. I'm kind of just, hey, this is me. This is what I do. And I was blown away by the response. People were just, I felt like I really connected with people. And I think vice versa, they really connected with me. And so again, it was sort of like that light went off. And I thought, oh, okay, maybe I'm not that bad. (laughs) (laughs) And so it's just, you know, again, it's kind of been a natural progression of things. And now I really love talking with folks. And, you know, just asking them about what they what they're looking for, what their investment objectives are, what their risk profile is, all that good stuff. And, of course, explaining what we do. And it's just amazing how, you know, people resonate with that and they really appreciate that. And so we've grown our investor database because of it. So, yeah, it's kind of interesting.
0: (laughs) No, it's absolutely interesting because you said that all the pieces seemed like they had just fallen into place and then you just grabbed all the pieces and put it together. But isn't it interesting how all the steps and the actions that you had taken in the past were just like another tool in your toolbox that you were just adding it onto it, adding onto it. And then you didn't even know it, but you already had all the pieces to the puzzle. And then now it was time to build up and you were ready to go.
1: Yes. No, that's why I say, I wish I could claim that I'm some smart guy that had it all figured out, but absolutely not. (laughs) It's it's kind of funny because actually right before REM started, Mm -hmm. I even got to the point where, you know, I've got family and wife and everything. And I was like, you know what, I'm fine. I can just work my consulting gigs and, you know, make enough to pay the bills. And that's good. I'm good. And then all of a sudden it's like, oh my gosh, this is crazy. But, you know, it is kind of funny how that happened. But I will say, I am very, very thankful that it didn't REM didn't happen 10, 15 years ago because I really believe strongly that you need to have a certain grounding as a person when you're asking people for millions and millions of dollars of their money. I think you need to have a certain level of experience. I think you have, need to have a certain level of appreciation for that money because you're a very, you know, it's a it's a pretty serious position to be in um, as a fiduciary responsible for all of that capital and i think that's what i feel comfortable with at this point is that i know i've got the track record and i know i've got that sort of mental stability to where it's my money and it's their money and i treat everything like it would be mine or better you know and i think that's important i think that's really key to to being a good business leader in any space but of course you know we're talking about real estate
0: we love hosting this show A podcast is the best way to do both, and we invite you to contact Adam Adams. He can help you launch your podcast, market your show for more listeners, and take all the post production off your plate so you can focus on your business instead of in it. Listeners of this show can get a free consultation with Adam. To schedule your free consultation, find the link in the show notes. What do you think when you started out four years ago with REM? You've grown it to half a billion dollars plus. What do you think has been your biggest contributor to being able to scale within the four years?
1: I would say probably the biggest thing is just staying focused and staying focused on the basics. And to some degree, that's also an admission that there are some things in the business that are not where I would like them to be. But I've realized in business and in life, there's 100 things on the to-do list. You cannot get all 100 things done. It is impossible. I remember working in corporate and I would get everything done all the time. I always had an empty inbox. I had everything done all the time. And then you start running your own business. And it's just like, things are flying by you at 150 miles an hour. And you realize real quick that you're either going to have to prioritize or you're literally going to get nothing done. And I have to focus on that every single day, whether it was four years ago or today, probably more so today than then, because now... You know, there's even more things going on. So I think if I was going to give anybody some advice, I would say you really want to focus, try to break down what you're doing into some simple components, and then just literally sit there. And if you've got 10 or 20 things, look at your list and say, what are the most important things that are going to move the ball forward to use a sports analogy? Um, What are the things that are going to move the ball forward each day a little bit? And it's amazing if you do that every single day, day after day, over time unbelievable how much you accomplish. Unbelievable. But it takes a discipline. And so I really credit that as being probably the most, you know, the biggest factor. And and I'm not going to say that I've done it perfectly because I go through weeks where, you know, I look back at the week and I think, oh my gosh, all I did was just read emails. This is crazy. (laughs) You
0: know? We think about like compounding interest and compounding money. It's the same thing about compounding habits and like the little daily things that we do every single day to move the needles, just one little thing after day after day. And then over time, you're going to be able to see the results of all your efforts that you put behind you.
1: Yes, absolutely. And I think to some degree that takes discipline, but I think it also takes a vision. And again, I kind of go back to investing when I was 12 or 13. I knew that I wasn't going to see some big result overnight. And so you begin to kind of think through, well, what does this mean? I invest my thousand dollars today and 10 years from now, I might have 10,000 or 5,000, but you know, whatever it is. And that's, you know, it's a little bit counterintuitive to our culture to some degree. I think a lot of people want to day trade with their lives. Like, Hey, I'm going to put this in and 15 minutes later, boom, I'm going to get my return. (laughs) You know? And it can work, but I would say most of the time, it really doesn't work. And that's why I'm a big fan of the slow and steady approach. Because I think long run, you're going to probably outperform.
0: (laughs) What is the biggest aspect or the biggest challenge that you face in managing such a large company and this Mm -hmm. large number of properties and assets under your belt?
1: Yeah. Well, I would say the management side of it, uh, the biggest challenge for me is hiring. Honestly, that has been the biggest challenge. And I have decided that if there's one thing I'm going to do before I retire, I'm going to get really good at hiring. <laughs> so, I've made some great hires and I've made some bad hires. And it really isn't a reflection on the people that I've hired. It's just been a reflection on it not being a good fit. And that's painful when you are growing and you hire somebody that's not a good fit. It's frustrating, especially for a type A personality, because you're like, I want to be right all the time. (laughs) So that's been a humbling experience, but it's also been something that I would say is the biggest challenge. And so, you know, recently, uh, I guess about a month ago, we actually partnered with a company called Predictive Index, and they help you with assessments and, you know, some other things to help kind of give you a data point for when you hire people so that It's not just an interview and a gut instinct. It's, let's take a look at some data. So, you know, we're trying to do some things to increase our success in that space. But at the end of the day, you know, if you really think about it, finding the right deals does take skill and experience. But to some degree, relative to the people side of it, I think it's easy. Now, I'm not saying it is easy, but relative to the people side of it, it is easy. And in the beginning, when you're a smaller business, it's not such a big deal because you've got, you know, three, four, five, ten 10 people, but we're at, I don't know, 80, 90 people, 80, 90 employees and growing. And so that becomes, you know, a big deal. If you're trying to grow 50% in a year, you're talking about hiring 40, 50 people. That's, you know, it's a good number of folks to hire and you want to hire good people. So that's been the biggest challenge is just really learning how to hire and now retain those folks and and keep them happy. And I think it'll continue to be a big challenge because as you know, in this market right now, it's, it's pretty stiff competition for, for good people. So
0: what is the biggest thing that most people, when they're looking to hire somebody tend to overlook as they're bringing on somebody new to the business and to the company?
1: Hmm. (laughs) That's a great question. I think, I don't know. I think there could be two things. I, I will say this depending on your personality as the hiring person or the CEO, I think we all tend to go one way or the other. We tend to look at the person's heart and kind of say, oh, they're a wonderful person. And we sometimes can overlook their technical skills. So I've seen that. And then I know other people, which I'm not so much. I'm more of a, you're a great person. Surely we'll find a good spot for you. Let's give you an opportunity. And I think that's a good thing. But You know, there's the other side which says, well, wait a minute, are you really qualified for that position? Do you have the technical capability to be here? And so that's the flip side is I know a lot of people that just look at the technical capability and say, do you have this degree and this experience? And they almost discount what the person is like. And Mm -hmm. I think either extreme can lead to bad hiring. So I think both of those, which I, I feel like most people tend one way or the other, I feel like both of those, the goal is to meet in the middle. And really balance the technical with the personality and being able to have a very sort of holistic approach to hiring, which isn't always easy. Because for the person that sees the opportunity in people, you feel bad when you look at their technical skills and you realize, uh, yeah, no, that's probably not a good fit. You know, you kind of feel like, ah, but maybe they could do it. (laughs) (laughs) And then on the other side, you know, the other person who looks at the technical, they feel bad because they're like, Yeah, but. You know, I don't really know who they are. I don't care who they are. You know, I just, so it, it's kind of an interesting psychological battle, I think, in your own head as a hiring person. And you have to kind of think about that and be cognizant of it in order to be successful at the hiring space. So I would say that's something. I will say that in this environment, just as an anecdote, I think companies that are fully remote have a little bit of a competitive advantage these days we being one of them, we were, we've been remote for four years now. And so that kind of helps because you're able to get a little wider net and then greater number of people to look at. And so it, you know, it kind of helps in one sense because you're not left with one resume kind of deciding, you know, is this the right one or not? You can get five or six and kind of make a good decision. So that helps. But anyway, to answer your question,
0: and it's so important to bring on the right people too and we see it even in the corporate world when you're bringing on a oh, new yeah. team member and how it impacts not just the hiring manager the supervisors or anything like that the CEOs it doesn't just impact them and the productivity of the job that they're hired to do but the team and the morale and how other people view the other the new team member whether or not they can lift up the team or bring them down, that new team member is a vital, important person to come on. And it absolutely. can either make or break the the rest of the team as well.
1: Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. Very, very key to that cohesiveness as a team and productivity, you know, of the team. So yes, totally agree with you. Great point. So. Yeah.
0: So you mentioned that your company is totally remote at this point, and mm-hmm. it has been for four years. How do you yeah. maintain the cohesiveness of your team as they are all remote?
1: Yeah. Well, and it's kind of funny because, you know, we we weren't remote, I guess, before it was cool. But um, <laughs> <laughs> I kept thinking as I was driving an hour each way, I thought, man, this is really silly. I mean, but the technology wasn't there. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure you remember, you know, you had the server in the server room, and that was where all the information was stored. And the only way to get access to it when you weren't there was through a VPN. And the VPN was kind of a pain because it was slow and all this kind of stuff. So I just kept waiting and waiting. And you know, slowly you start to see. I think Dropbox was the first company that rolled out their sort of cloud file storage. And then Zoom came on the on the scene. And then, you know, they were kind of bad in the beginning, and then they started getting better and better. So the minute that I felt like the technology was good enough for us, I said, hey, let's move. Let's do this. And so we've never looked back. And it has been good. But to your point, keeping the team and the management involved has been the biggest challenge for us and for me personally, because I was a big fan of management by wandering around. <laughs> but, you know, which is basically, you're, you know, you take every few hours, you kind of go wander around, say a to of people, connect with them, build rapport. And I really loved it. you know. It was relationship-based, but then there was a lot of work that got done at the same time. And in a remote environment, that's more challenging. So we do a couple of things. I like to have regular meetings with my management staff on teams. And sometimes I'll do it once a week. Sometimes I'll do it three times a week, just depending on the need. And so that's a great opportunity for us to talk about specific things. And then again, it's kind of custom to different personalities. So some people I know They want an agenda. They want to know exactly what we're going to talk about and we knock it out of the park. And then maybe there's, you know, a few minutes to chit chat. But usually it's like, hey, I just want to get my work done. Okay, no problem. And then there's other people where I know it's, you know, the relationship is more important to them. So it's not as critical that we get an agenda on the board. But I think there's a good balance there. And that's what we're always trying to uh, strive for is a good balance between the two. So we do that. And then we actually have a leadership summit. Right now it's once a year. I'm actually thinking about Doing it biannually, twice a year, where we get all of our managers and leadership together. And we do training, we do dinner, you know, lunch, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. We just spend a day, a couple days actually, on site at a really nice hotel and have some fun and, you know, just kind of build that one on one time. And we did it last year for the first time and it was good. It was really cool. So that's kind of been our approach, you know, kind of have some regular meetings and then do an in person once twice a year and kind of keep the team at a good place. We have lots of room to grow. So I don't want to say we have it all figured out, but.
0: (laughs) So what is next for you guys and your team then?
1: Well, I would say for me, the goal is I've got a, you know, call it a three to five year succession plan that I'm working on at this point. So that my senior management team becomes the next sort of partners, owners in the business. And my goal is to build them into those folks where they can really take on the full leadership role at REM. And then I'm, in the same time, working on creating a board so that I can step aside to kind of be chairman of the board, obviously still overseeing things like final sign off on a deal, and as well as overseeing company culture, both from an investor as well as an employee standpoint. So those are kind of the 3 things that I'm going to always be focused on personally. But again, kind of coming back to the opportunity uh, phase, I really want to continue to give people the opportunity to move up in the company. And I want to also create a culture where it isn't your CEO for life type of thing. Nothing wrong with that. Just not really the kind of culture that I want to build. So, you know, having that idea that, Hey, you get your five or 10 years at uh, senior management, you get to make a pile of money. And then you step aside and you've built your next team, you know, your next generation to step in and and it's their time in the sun, so to speak. So that's kind of the idea. And I think if we do that, it will, you know, if we do that and we keep true to our true culture of who we are, I think the sky's the limit. I don't know what it is, but I I just feel like the sky's the limit. It doesn't matter whether we're 500 million or 500 billion, uh, you know, everybody will figure it out because they're motivated, excited. and I don't know. I'm excited to see where, you know, 20 years from now, who knows. It'll be it could be the second or third generation that's running the company. I'll still be here, hopefully. <laughs> and I'm excited to see, you know, where things go, but I think that's to me that's part of the fun, you know, to 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 see how other people will continue to grow the legacy in the future.
0: And how has real estate investing impacted your life, Robert?
1: Well, a lot, obviously. <laughs> I would say it's kind of given me the opportunity to do some very cool things. And I am super appreciative of that. Obviously, it's provided financially tremendously, which is wonderful. We all want to be able to do that, take care of our families and things of that nature. But I think too, it has provided an opportunity and continues to provide an opportunity for other people to come into the business, learn the business, grow in the business. And that's really rewarding for me personally. I feel like that's something that, you know, money can't buy. And, you know, I always tell everybody, I say, listen, guys, uh, once you get past a certain number, whatever that number is, I mean, having a third, fourth, fifth house and jet uh, that, you know, I mean, it's just not that exciting anymore. (laughs) So, you know, there comes a point where you're like, hey, I've got a great nest egg. And now it's more about giving back. It's more about developing other people. It's more about seeing other people succeed. And that's kind of where I'm at in my trajectory. But, you know, like you said, nonetheless, to answer your question, what does real estate give me? It's given me all of that. You know, the ability to first kind of build my own financial nest egg and now being able to help other people do it. It's just such a very cool, powerful investment vehicle. And I think it's only going to get better. I mean, there's 4.3 million units short in the United States right now. And we need a lot of new homes. And it's a big project for all of us in the space to kind of step up to the plate and take care of that demand. But it's it's gonna be fun.
0: And if there's one thing that you know now about real estate that you wish you knew when you first started, what would that be?
1: <laughs> well, I think the biggest thing for me was just the confidence level mm-hmm. to go out and talk to people and just be transparent and not feel like I had to put on a show. Now, granted. I had a lot of experience. So it wasn't like I was just trying to make things up. I literally could be transparent and, you know, just, Hey, here's what we're going to do. So that helps, you know, I don't want to make it sound like somebody that just walks off the street <laughs> to do that. You know, right. um, I don't want to be, I don't want it to be too Pollyanna about it, but you know what I'm saying? It's just, I think I wish I would have thought for, or maybe had the confidence to do that earlier. And I think um, that would have been fun. But you know, at the same time, I look at it and I say, yeah, but if I did, maybe it would have been too successful too early. And sometimes that can be just as as harmful as, not, as the other. So I don't know. I feel like everything happened for a reason in one sense. And we're here where we are today for a reason. And I feel very content in that. Um, so yeah, I think that's probably the biggest thing. I guess the other thing I would say now that I'm thinking about it is I think being able to pick good partners is definitely a skill that takes some time and some failures, I think, along the way. And you just have to be willing to push through those and, and not succumb to the failure. You know, not, not say, oh, I'm, I'm no good at this. I just, I can't do it. I think that's probably another thing that I would have probably done a little differently is just, you know, take a little bit more time to vet partners and to be careful. I've had some awesome partners and I've had, you know, really very few bad situations. In fact, I can only think of two. So one when I bought when I partnered with that guy years and years ago. And then we actually had a deal a few years ago that just, you know, didn't turn out right. And, you know, it was kind of just a little bit of a lack of homework and research. And sometimes you look back and you think, Oh, you know, I should have done this, this, and this. And then you think, Yeah, but you just don't know. And so I think there's some some degree where you just have to kind of chalk it up to a learning experience and life goes on. But uh I mean, by and large, I've had had some great partners, super thankful for all of them and wouldn't be here today without them. So that's been awesome. Awesome. So, yeah.
0: Well, and Robert, <laughs> how can our listeners find out more about you and what you're doing?
1: Sure. Thanks. Yeah. I would just say our website, remcapital.com or they can email me, robert at com. Happy to chat anytime, answer questions, You know, add value, whatever I can do. So yeah, absolutely. Thanks.
0: Awesome. Thank you so much for sharing a little bit more about your journey with us here today, Robert. really appreciate it.
1: You bet. My pleasure. Thank you.
0: And thank you for listening to our podcast today brought to you by Bonavest Capital. We'd really appreciate it if you can go to iTunes right now and leave a rating and written review. Also, please don't forget to subscribe so you can always get the latest episodes. You can also connect with us on Facebook. How did they do it? Real estate. We'd love to hear your feedback and any topics that you're interested in for future episodes. If you're anything like Sayla and me and believe that real estate investing is a great way to create passive income and build long-term wealth, check out our free apartment syndication due diligence checklist for passive investors at bonavestcapital.com forward slash checklist. Sayla and I created this checklist for ourselves as we evaluated different multifamily syndication opportunities as a passive investor. So we would love to share it with you so you can use it as a resource as well. Download your free copy today at bonavestcapital.com forward slash checklist. Lastly, to learn more about us, you can go to bonavestcapital.com and fill out the contact us page so you can speak to us directly. Nothing on the show should be considered as specific personal advice. Please consult your legal, tax, and real estate professionals for individualized advice.